1. Punch. O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume the First. Introduction. Political Summary. Early in the month of July, 1841, a small handbill was freely distributed by the newsmen of London, and created considerable amusement and inquiry. That handbill now stands as the introduction to this, the first volume of Punch, and was employed to announce the advent of a publication which has sustained for nearly twenty years a popularity unsurpassed in the history of periodical literature. Punch and the elections were the only matters which occupied the public mind on July 17, 1842. The Whigs had been defeated in many places where hitherto they had been the popular party, and it was quite evident that the meeting of Parliament would terminate their lease of office. Street politics. The House met on the 19th of August, and unanimously elected Mr. Shaw a favor to be Speaker. The address on the Queen's speech was moved by Mr. Mark Phillips, and seconded by Mr. D.U.N.D.A.'s. Mr. J.S.W.O.R.D.L.E. moved an amendment, negativing the confidence of the House in the Ministry, and the debate continued to occupy Parliament for four nights, when the opposition obtained a majority of 91 against the Ministers, amongst those who spoke against the government, and directly in favor of Sir R.O.B.R.D. Peel, was Mr. D.I.S.R.A.L.I. In his speech he accused the Whigs of seeking to retain power in opposition to the wishes of the country, and of profaning the name of the Queen at their elections as if she had been a second candidate at some petty poll, and considered that they should blush for the position in which they had placed their sovereign, Mr. B.R.N.L. June retorted upon Mr. D.I.S.R.A.L.I. for inveighing against the Whigs, with whom he had formerly been associated, Sir R.O.B.R.D. Peel, in a speech of great eloquence, condemned the inactivity and feebleness of the existing government, and promised that, should he displace it, and take office, it should be by walking in the open light and in the direct paths of the Constitution, he would only accept power upon his conception of public duty, and would resign the moment he was satisfied he was unsupported by the confidence of the people, and not continue to hold place when the voice of the country was against him, Hercules tearing Theseus from the rock to which he had grown, Lord John defended the acts of the ministry, and denied that they had been guilty of harshness to the poor by the new poor law or enemies of the church by reducing the Archbishop of Canterbury to the miserable pence of L15.000 a year, cutting down the Bishop of London to no more than L10.000 a year, and the Bishop of Durham to the wretched stipend of L8.000 a year. He twitted Peel for his reticence upon the corn laws, and denounced the possibility of a sliding scale of duties upon corn. He concluded by saying, I am convinced that, if this country be governed by enlarged and liberal councils, its power and might will spread and increase, and its influence become greater and greater, liberal principles will prevail, civilization will be spread to all parts of the globe, and you will bless millions by your acts and mankind by your union. Loud and continued cheering followed this speech, but on division the majority was against the ministers, when the House met to recommend the report on the amended address. Mr. S.H.A.R.R.A. and Crawford moved another amendment, to the effect that the distress of the people referred to in the Queen's speech was mainly attributable to the non-representation of the working classes in Parliament. He did not advocate universal suffrage, but one which would give a fair representation of the people, from the want of the sorrows and just wars, and just legislation, and just monopoly, of which the existing Corn Laws were the most grievous instance. There was no danger in confiding the suffrage to the working classes who had a vital interest in the public prosperity, and had evinced the truest zeal for freedom. The amendment was negative by 283 to 39, 
At the next meeting of the House Lord Marcus Hill read the answer to the address, in which the Queen declared that, ever anxious to listen to the advice of Parliament, she would take immediate measures for the formation of a new administration. Unchan Peel, Lord Melbourne, in the House of Lords, announced on the 30th of August that he and his colleagues only held office until their successors were appointed. Last pinch, the House received the announcement in perfect silence, and adjourned immediately afterwards, on the same night. In the House of Commons, Lord John Russell made a similar announcement, and briefly defended the course he and his colleagues had taken, and in reply to some complimentary remarks from Lord Stanley, approving of Lord John's great zeal, talent, and perseverance, denied that the Crown was answerable for any of the propositions contained in the speech, which were the result of the advice of Her Majesty's ministers, and for which Her ministers alone were responsible. This declaration was necessary in consequence of the accusation of the Conservatives, that the Ministry had made an unfair use of the Queen's name in and out of Parliament. Trimming a wig, the new Ministry the letter of introduction was formed as follows, the Cabinet, the Duke of Wellington without office, First Lord of the Treasury, Sir R. Peel, Lord Chancellor, Lord Elion D.H.U.H.S.D., Chancellor of the Exchequer, Wright Hon, H.J.O.U.L.B.U.R.N., President of the Council. Lord W.H.A.R.N.C.L.I.F.F.E., Privy Seal, Duke of Buckingham, Home Secretary, Sir James Graham, Foreign Secretary, Earl of Aberdeen, Colonial Secretary, Lord Stanley, First Lord of the Admiralty, Earl of H.A.D.D.I.N.G.D.O.N., President of the Board of Control, Lord E.L.L.I.N.B.O.R.O.U.G.H., President of the Board of Trade, Earl of R.I.P.O.N., Secretary at War, Sir H.H.A.R.D.I.N.G., Treasurer of the Navy and Paymaster of the Forces, Sir E. K. N. A. D. C. H. P. U. L. L. Not in the Cabinet. Postmaster General. Lord Edlow W. D. H. R. Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Lord G. Somerset, Woods and Forests. Earl of Lincoln, Master General of the Ordnance. Sir G. Murray, Vice President of the Board of Trade and Master of the Mint. W. E. Gladstone, Secretary of the Admiralty. Han. Sidney Herbert, Joint Secretaries of the Treasury. Sir G. Clerk and Sir T. Freemantle. Secretaries of the Board of Control, Han, W. Baring and J. Emerson D. Yenandi, Home Undersecretary, Han, C. M. Sutton, Foreign Undersecretary, Lord Canning, Colonial Undersecretary, G. W. Hope, Lords of the Treasury, Alexander P. R. I. N. G. L. E., H. Baring, J. Young, and J. Milnes J. A. S. K. L. L., Lords of the Admiralty, Sir G. Cockburn, Admiral Sir W. Gage, Sir G. Seymour, Han, Captain Gordon, Han, H. L. Corey, Storekeeper of the Ordnance, J. R. B. O. M. H. A. N., Clerk of the Ordnance, Captain B. O. L. D. E. R. O., Surveyor General of the Ordnance, Colonel Jonathan Peel, Attorney General, Sir F. Pollock, Solicitor General, Sir W. F. O. L. L. E. D. Judge Advocate, Dr. N. I. C. H. O. L. L., Governor General of Canada, Sir C. B. A. G. O. D., Lord Advocate of Scotland, Sir W. Ray, Ireland, Lord Lieutenant, Earl de Grey, Lord Chancellor, Sir E.S.U.G.D.N., Chief Secretary, Lord Elliot, Attorney General, Mr. B.L.A.C.K.B.U.R.N.E., Q.C., Solicitor General, S.E.R.J.A. Andy Jackson, Queen's Household, Lord Chamberlain, Earl D.L.A.W.A.R.R., Lord Stewart, Earl of Liverpool, Master of the Horse, Earl of Jersey, Master of the Buckhounds, Earl of R.O.S.S.L. Lion, Captain of the Yeoman of the Guard, Marquess of L.O.D.H.I.A.N., Captain of the Gentlemen Pensioners, Lord Forrester, Vice Chamberlain, Lord Ernest Bruce, Treasurer of the Household, Earl J. E. R. M. Wyan, Controller of the Household, 
Han, D. Damer, Lords in Waiting, Lord Abiyawayani, Lord Rivers, Lord H.A.R.D.W.I.C.K., Lord Byron, Earl of Warwick, Viscount Sidney, Earl of Morton, and Marquess of Oaramundi, Groom in Waiting, Captain Emmy Wyanielel, Mistress of the Robes, Duchess of B.U.C.C.L.E.U.C.H., Ladies of the Bedchamber, Marchioness Camden, Lady Elightyelteolan, Lady Piordiamayan, Lady B.A.R.H.A.M., and Countess of C.H.A.R.I.L.E.M.O.L.E.D.E., Prince Albert's Household, Groom of the Stole, Marquess of Exeter, Sergeant at Arms, Colonel P.R.C.A.V.A.L., Clerk Marshal, Lord C. Wellesley, the members of the new government were re-elected without an exception, and the House of Commons met again on September 16th. Sir R.O.B.R.D. Peel made a statement to the House, in which he merely intimated that he should adopt the estimates playing the name of his predecessors, and continue the existing poor law and its establishment to the 31st of July following. He declined to announce his own financial measures until the next session, and continued in this determination and moved by the speeches of Lord John Russell, Lord P.A.L.M.E.R. Rustiolan, and other members of the opposition. Mr. F.I.E.L.D.E.N. moved that no supplies be granted until after an inquiry into the distress of the country, but the motion was negative by a large majority. Continual reference was made by Mr. C.O.B.D.E.N., Mr. V.I.L.L.I.R.S., and others to the strong desire of the people for a repeal of the Corn Laws, and which had been loudly expressed out of the House for more than four years. Mr. B.U.S.F.I.E.L.D.F.E.R.R.A.N.D. denied the necessity for any alteration and accused the manufacturers of fomenting the agitation for their own selfish ends, and to increase their power of reducing the wages of the already starving workmen. Mr. Mark Phillips, in a capital speech, disproved all Mr. F.E.R.R.A.N.D.'s statements. Sir R.O.B.R.D. Peel brought in a bill to continue the Poor Law Commission for six months, and Mr. Fielder's amendment the well-dressed and the well-to-do to reject it was negative by 183 to 18. Lord Melbourne attacked in the House of Lords, the Ministerial Plan of Finance, and their silence as to the future Mr. S.A.N.C.H.O. Bull and his state physician, and invited the Duke of Wellington to bring forward a measure for an alteration of the Corn Laws, promising him a full house if he would do so. The Duke declined the invitation, as he never announced an intention which he did not entertain, and he had not considered the operation of the Corn Laws sufficiently to bring forward a scheme for the alteration of them. The statement led on a subsequent evening to an intimation from the Duke of Wellington, in reply to the Earl of Radnor, that a consideration of the Corn Laws was only declined at the present time. On the 7th of October Parliament was prorogued until November 11th, the Lord's Commissioners being the Lord Chancellor, the Duke of Wellington, the Duke of Buckingham, the Earl of S.H.A.F.D.S.B.U.R.E., and Lord W.H.A.R.N.C.L.I.F.E. Notes. Hume's Terminology. Defeat at Leeds. W. Beckett 2076 W.A.L.D.A.M. 2043 T. Hume 2033 Viscount Jocelyn 1926 Lessons in P.U.N.M.A. Thomas Hood, the distinguished poet and wit, died May 3, 1845. Court Circular, Master Jones, better known as the Boy Jones, was a sweet who obtained admission on more than one occasion to Buckingham Palace in a very mysterious manner. He gave great trouble to the authorities and was at length sent into the Royal Navy. Mrs. Lilly was the nurse of the Princess Royal. Mr. and D. Wire, a stipendiary magistrate, removed from the Commons on a charge of bribing electors, a public conveyance. The Marquis of Waterford was then a man about town, and frequently before the public in connection with some extravagance. 
The Black Bolt of the United Service, refers to proceedings connected with the Earl of Cardigan. Exception had been taken to the introduction of black bottles at the mess table at Brighton, and a duel was subsequently fought by Lord Cardigan and Mr. Harvey T.U.C.K.D.D. An ode, Kilpax Van, now the American Bowling Alley, in King Street, Covent Garden, continues to be the resort of minor celebrities, as the club was a private one. We do not feel justified in more plainly indicating the members referred to as the Jokel Nine, Mrs. H. Mrs. Honey, a very charming actress. Court Circular. Def Burke was a pugilist who occasionally exhibited himself as the Grecian statues, and upon one occasion attempted a reading from a Sachakaspilari, as he was very ignorant, and could neither read nor write. The effect was extremely ridiculous, and helped to give the man a notoriety. The Harp, a tavern near Drury Lane, was a favorite resort of the Elder Keen, and in 1841 had a club room divided into four wards, Gin Ward, Poverty Ward, Insanity Ward, and Suicide Ward, the walls of which were appropriately illustrated, and by no mean hand, the others named with the exception of Patty Green were pugilists, and N-T-A-N-A-C-R-E-O-N-D-I-C, R-U-N-D-L was the head of a large jeweler's firm on Ludgate Hill. Monsieur J. Uelalian was the first successful promoter of cheap concerts in England. He was a clever conductor, and affected the mountebank. He was a very honorable man, and hastened his death by overexertion to meet his liabilities. He died 1860. Punch and Peel. Sir Peel stipulated, on taking office, for an entire change of the ladies of the bedchamber. William Farron, the celebrated actor of old men. Colonel S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P. was MP for Lincoln and more distinguished by his benevolence to his constituency than his merits as a senator. He was very amusing. Fashionable movements. Count Dorsey, an elegant, accomplished, and kind-heart Frenchman, was a leader of fashion, long resident in England. He was the friend and advisor of Louis Napoleon during his exile in this country. Count Dorsey died in Paris. Jobbing patriots. Mr. George Robbins was an auctioneer in Covent Garden and celebrated for the extravagant imagery of his advertisements. His successors had offices in Bond Street. Shocking want of sympathy. Circulary, a very active city magnate, continually engaged in putting down suicide, poverty, and C. Sir F.B.U.R.D.A.D.D. Long the radical member for Westminster. His political perversion took everyone by surprise. New stuffing for the speaker's chair. Mr. Peter B.O.R.D.H.W.I.C.K. had been an actor in the provinces. Inquest. The Eagle Tavern. City Road. Was built by Mr. Rouse. Bravo. Rouse. As he was called. Lady Morgan. The authorities of the Wild Irish Girl. And many other popular works. Died 1860. The Tory tabled hote. Billy. Holmes was whipper into the conservatives in the House of Commons. The legal ECCA in Lobby Island. Baron Campbell had been appointed Chancellor of Ireland a few days before the dissolution 1841. He is now Lord Chancellor of England 1861. The Ecolobion was an apparatus for hatching birds by steam, but was too costly to be successful commercially. The state doctor, Sir R. Peel, in his speech at Tamworth, had called himself the state doctor, who would not attempt to prescribe until regularly called in curious coincidence. Certain gentlemen, feeling themselves aggrieved and unfairly treated by the managers of the London theatres, had for some time been abusing the more fortunate dramatists, whose pieces had found acceptance with the public, until at last they resolved upon the course here set forth, and commented upon, animal magnetism, Lords Melbourne, Russell, and M.O.R.P.D.H., 
and Mr. Libiouchere at the window, Sir R. Peel and the Duke of Wellington mesmerizing the lion, Mr. Muadizi, MP for Birmingham, wore a very large beard, and in 1841 such hirsute adornments were very uncommon. General satisfaction, the morning herald had acquired the sobriquet of my grandmother, Dunn again, Mr. Dunn, a barrister, subjected Miss B.U.R.D.A.D.C.O.U.D.D.S. to a series of annoyances which ultimately led to illegal proceedings, and to Mr. Dunn's imprisonment. Bernard Cavanaugh was an impostor who pretended he could live for many weeks without food. He attracted much attention at the time, and was ultimately detected concealing a cold sausage, when he confessed his imposture, and was imprisoned by the mayor of Reading, taking the H.O.D.D.S. Holy Land, the cant name for a part of Street Giles's, now destroyed. Banks owned a public house frequented by thieves of both sexes, and who he managed to keep under perfect control. A visit to Stunning Joe Banks was thought a fast thing in 1841. F.A.R.G.U.S. O'Connor, M.P. for Nottingham, was the leader of the Chartists and projector of the land scheme for securing votes to the Massays. The project failed. Mr. O'Connor was a political enthusiast, ultimately became insane, and died in an asylum. Diachexian Amarachian. Mr. Frederick Yates was an admirable actor, and the proprietor and manager of the favorite Little Adolfi Theatre, in the Strand, Prospectus. We believe this article suggested the existing accident assurance company. Mr. Silk Buckingham was a voluminous writer and founder of the British and Foreign Institute, in George Street, Hanover Square, Parliamentary Masons. The Masons employed in building the new houses of Parliament struck for higher wages, the improvident. Lord Melbourne and Mr. Libiouchere, Mr. D. O'Connell, Lords Russell and M.O.R.P.D.H., Promenade Concerts, M.M.U.S.A.R.D. was the originator in Paris of this class of amusement, their popularity induced an imitation in England by M.J.U.L.L.I.N., to benevolent and humane jokers, Tom Cook was the leader and composer at the Theatre's Royal, and a remarkable performer on a penny trumpet, he occasionally made use of this toy in his pantomime introductions. He was also a very funny fellow. Coming events cast their shadows before Sir James Clark, Akusher to the Queen, Savory Con, by Cox, Cox and Savory, advertising silversmiths and watchmakers, new parliamentary masons, in the foreground call, S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P., Sir R. Peel, and Mr. O'Connell, at the back Sir James Graham, Duke of Wellington, and Lord Stanley, Rob Emmy the Exchequer, Hell. A person of the name of Smith forged a great amount of exchequer bills at this time. The fire at the tower on October 31, 1841. Immense damage was done to the building, and a great quantity of worms were destroyed. See annual register. Sir Robiardi Robert McCare was a French felonious drama made famous by the admirable acting of Eliadiari. And, from some supposed allusion to Louis Philippe, M.A.C.A.I.R.'s friend and scapegoat always appears with a large umbrella. The O'Connell Papers. The O'Connell was elected Lord Mayor of Dublin. 1841. Harmer V.I.R.U.M.Q.U.A.C.A.N.O. Alderman Harmer. Proprietor of the Weekly Dispatch. And for that and other reasons. Was not elected Lord Mayor. Cutting at the root of the evil. Mr. H.O. Beeler was for many years principal clerk to the magistrates at the Mansion House. Olivia's Lord Brooms returned to her friends. Lords Russell, Melbourne, M.O.R.P.D.H., D. O'Connell, C.O.R.D.N., and L.A.B.O.U.C.H.E.R.E., a baronite. Sir Vincent Cotton was a well-known foreign hand whip, and for some little time drove a coach to Brighton, 
Sir Windemay and SDRUDH or Wheel of Fortune was another four-in-hand celebrity. Seeing nothing. Daniel Whittle Harvey. Barbara O'Hare's announcement. Mr. Tanner's shop was part of one of the side arches of Temple Bar, and so reached from that obstruction to Shire Lane, which adjoins it on the city side. Fashionable intelligence. The Patty Green so frequently referred to was a popular singer and an excellent-tempered man. He was unfairly treated by Punch at this time, because really unknown to the writer. Mr. John Green is now the well-known and much-respected host and proprietor of Evans's Hotel, Covent Garden, Kings and Carpenters, Don Leone, shop for insurrection in favor of the ex-regent Christina, Cupid out of place, Lord P. A. Elimia Rustiolan, from his very engaging manner, was long known as Cupid, Jack cutting his name on the beam, Lord John Russell, after George C.R.U.I.K.S.H.A.N.K.'s etching of Jack Shepard, S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P.'s con. Corner. Bryant was publisher of Punch. 1841. Punch. O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1. For the week ending July 17, 1841. The moral of Punch. As we hope, gentle public, to pass many happy hours in your society, we think it right that you should know something of our character and intentions. Our title at a first glance, may have misled you into a belief that we had no other intention than the amusement of a thoughtless crowd, and the collection of pence, we had a higher object, few of the admirers of our prototype, Mary Master Punch, have looked upon his vagaries but as the practical outpourings of a rude and boisterous mirth, we have considered him as a teacher of no mean pretensions, and have, therefore, adopted him as the sponsor for our weekly sheet of pleasant instruction. When we have seen him parading in the glories of his molly, flourishing his baton like our friend Julian at Drury Lane in time with his own unrivaled discord, by which he seeks to win the attention and admiration of the crowd, what visions of graver puppetry have passed before our eyes, golden circlets, with their adornments of colored and lustrous gems, have bound the brow of infamy as well as that of honor a mockery to both, as though virtue required a reward beyond the fulfillment of its own high purposes or that infamy could be cheated into the forgetfulness of its vileness by the weight around its temples. Gilded coaches have glided before us, in which sat men who thought the buzz and shouts of crowds a guerdon for the toils, the anxieties, and, too often, the peculations of a life. Our ears have run with the noisy frothiness of those who have bought their fellow men as beasts in the marketplace, and found their reward in the sycophancy of a degraded constituency, or the patronage of a venal ministry no matter of what creed. For party must destroy patriotism. The noble in his robes and coronet, the beadle in his gaudy livery of scarlet, and purple, and gold, the dignitary in the fullness of his pomp, the demagogue in the triumph of his hollowness, these and other visual and oral cheats by which mankind are cajoled, have passed in review before us, conjured up by the magic wand of punch. How we envy his philosophy, when S-H-A-L-A-B-A-L-A, that demon with the bell, besets him at every turn almost teasing the sap out of him, the moment that his tormentor quits the scene, Punch seems to forget the existence of his annoyance, and, caroling the mellifluous numbers of Jim Crow, or some other strain of equal beauty, makes the most of the present, regardless of the past or future, and when S-H-A-L-A-B-A-L-A renews his persecutions, Punch boldly faces his enemy, and ultimately becomes the victor, all have S-H-A-L-A-B-A-L-A in some shape or other, but few, how few, the philosophy of Punch. We are afraid our prototype is no favorite with the ladies. Punches and we reluctantly admit the fact of malvision in principle. 
and somewhat of a domestic tyrant, for his conduct is at times harsh and ingenuinely to Mrs. P. Even the land that still is paradise, Italian beauty, but as we never look for perfection in human nature, it is too much to expect it and would, we wish it to be understood that we repudiate such principles and conduct, we have a duty of our own, and a little punchinony that commits innumerable improprieties, but we fearlessly aver that we never threw him out of window, nor belabored the lady with a stick even of the size allowed by law. There is one portion of the drama we wish was omitted, for it always saddens us we allude to the present scene. Punch, it is true, sings endurance, but we hear the ring of the bars mingling with the song. We are advocates for the correction of offenders, but how many generous and kindly beings are there pining within the walls of a prison, whose only crimes are poverty and misfortune. Bay, too, sing and laugh, and appear jocund, but the heart can ever hear the ring of the bars. We never looked upon a lark in a cage, and heard him trilling out his music as he sprang upwards to the roof of his prison, but we felt sickened with the sight and sound, as contrasting, in our thought, the free minstrel of the morning, bounding as it were into the blue caverns of the heavens, with the bird to whom the world was circumscribed. May the time soon arrive, when every prison shall be a palace of the mind when we shall seek to instruct and cease to punish. Punch has already advocated education by example. Look at his dog Toby. The instinct of the brute has almost germinated into a reason. Man has reason. Why not give him intelligence? We've now come to the last great lesson of our motley teacher the gallows. That accursed tree which has its root in injuries. How clearly Punch exposes the fallacy of that dreadful law which authorizes the destruction of life. Punch sometimes destroys the hangman, and why not? Where is the divine injunction against the shedder of man's blood to arrest? None can answer. To us there is but one disposer of life. At other times punch hangs the devil, this is as it should be. Destroy the principle of evil by increasing the means of cultivating the good, and the gallows will then become as much a wonder as it is now a jest. We shall always play punch, for we consider it best to be merry and wise and laugh at all things, for we wish to know what, after all, are all things but a show. Byron, as on the stage of Punch's theater, Many characters appear to fill up the interstices of the more important story, so our pages will be interspersed with trifles that have no other object than the moment's approbation and end which will never be sought for at the expense of others, beyond the evanescent smile of a harmless satire. Commercial Intelligence There is a report of the stoppage of one of the most respectable hard-bake houses in the metropolis. The firm had been speculating considerably in Prince Albert's Rock and this is said to have been the rock they had ultimately split upon. The boys will be the greatest sufferers. One of them had stripped high a jacket of all its buttons as a deposit on some tom trot, which the house had promised to supply on the following day, and we regret to say. There are whispers of other transactions of a similar character. Money has been abundant all day, and we saw a half-crown piece and some hapens lying absolutely idle in the hands of an individual, who if he had only chosen to walk with it into the market, might have produced a very alarming effect on some minor description of securities. Cherries were taken very freely at tuppence a pound, and Spanish licorice at a shade lower than yesterday. There has been a most disgusting glut of tallow all the week, which has had an alarming effect on dips, and thrown a still further gloom upon rushlights. The late discussions on the timber duties have brought the match market into a very unsettled state and Congrave lights seemed destined to undergo a still further depression. The state of things was rendered worse towards the close of the day, 
by a large holder of the last named article unexpectedly throwing an immense quantity into the market, which went off rapidly, something warlike. Many of our readers must be aware, that in pantomimic pieces, the usual mode of making the audience acquainted with anything that cannot be clearly explained by dumb show, is to exhibit a linen scroll, on which is painted, in large letters, the sentence necessary to be known. It so happened that a number of these scrolls had been thrown aside after one of the grand spectacles at Astley's Amphitheatre, and remained amongst other lumber in the property room, until the late destructive fire which occurred there, on that night. The wife of one of the stage assistants a woman of portly dimensions was aroused from her bed by the alarm of fire, and in her confusion, being unable to find her proper habiliments, laid hold of one of these scrolls, and wrapping it around her, hastily rushed into the street, and presented to the astonished spectators an extensive back view, with the words, Bombard the Citadel, inscribed in legible characters upon her singular drapery, Hume's terminology, Hume is so annoyed at his late defeat at Leeds, that he vows he will never make use of the word Tory again as long as he lives. Indeed, he proposes to expunge the term from the English language, and to substitute that which is applied to his own party, in writing to a friend, that, after the inflammatory character of the oratory of the Carlton Club, it is quite supererogatory for me to state it being notorious that all conciliatory measures will be rendered nugatory. He thus expressed himself. After the inflammable character of the Orawig of the nominees of the Carlton Club, it is quite supererogawig for me to state it being no widows that all conciliawig measures will be rendered nugawig. Native Swallows, a correspondent to one of the daily papers has remarked, that there is an almost total absence of swallows this summer in England. Had the writer been present at some of the election dinners lately, he must have confessed that a greater number of active swallows has rarely been observed congregated in any one year. Lord Melbourne do, Punch, my dear Punch, seeing in the court circular of the Morning Herald an account of a general goblet as one of the guests of Her Majesty, I beg to state, that till I saw that announcement, I was not aware of any other general goblet than myself at the palace, yours, truly, M.E.L.B.O.U.R. on a railroad novel dear Punch, I was much amused the other day, on taking my seat in the Birmingham railway train, to observe a sentimental looking young gentleman, who was sitting opposite to me, deliberately draw from his traveling bag three volumes of what appeared to me a new novel of the full regulation size, and with intense interest commenced the first volume at the title page, at the same instant the last bell rang, and away started our train, with, bang, like a flash of lightning through a butter firkin, I endeavored to catch a glimpse of some familiar places as we passade, but the attempt was altogether useless, Harrow on the hill, as we shot by it, seemed to be driving Palmwell up to town, followed by Boxmoor, Tearing, and Aylesbury I missed Wilverton and Wheaton while taking a pinch of snuff lost Rugby and Coventry before I had done sneezing, and I had scarcely time to say, God bless us, till I found we had reached Birmingham, whereupon I began to calculate the trifling progress my reading companion could have made in his book during our rapid journey and to devise plans for the gratification of persons similarly situated as my fellow traveller. Why, thought I, should literature alone lag in the age of steam? Is there no way by which a man could be made to swallow Scott or Bolt Bolur, in as short a time as it now takes him to read an auction bill? Suddenly a happy thought struck me, it was to write a novel, in which only the actual spirit of the narration should be retained, rejecting all expletives, flourishes, and ornamental figures of speech 
to be terse and abrupt in style use monosyllables always in preference to polysyllables and to eschew all her.